This podcast series is made possible by a grant from Intuitive, maker of the Da Vinci and Ion Surgical Robotic Systems. The Intuitive Foundation is dedicated to promoting the advancement of STEM educational programs, medical and technology research, healthcare training, and fellowship programs. Welcome to our podcast, Women in STEAM, Perspectives from the Field. I am your host, Aspen Slavik-Gerlach, and with much honor, I am pleased to bring Audris Johnson on our show today to speak with us about her experiences as a systems engineer and as a woman of STEAM. Welcome to the podcast, Audris. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you here. So to start us off, would you mind giving us a recap of what it is that you do as a systems engineer and what service your job provides to the overall process of an engineering project? Systems engineering is a very broad field, and you will find this uh, field in many different areas of practice, in many different engineering areas. I happen to work in aerospace engineering, and I have for many years now. Um, With respect to aerospace, systems engineering is basically a multidiscipline approach, a philosophy, if you will, for creating and using a complex system. It can be applied to almost any system. I have done a lot of different things with systems engineering over the years. Uh, Much of my career has been spent doing requirements management. So that means that I'm the keeper of everything that my program is required to do in order to create a given project, even down to the very smallest details. This involves, in a practical sense, a lot of organization, a lot of technical writing, And in a general sense, my work, the things that I produce, uh, my work is the final word on whether or not we have actually done what we promised to our customer. Fantastic. So when we spoke last, um, I believe a couple weeks ago, I I remember you talking about how projects differ depending on requirements and requests from the customer uh, for this specific project. How do your responsibilities as a system engineer uh, differ depending on the needs, resources, et cetera, of the customer that you're working with? So that it, it's almost a tough question to answer, really. And um, interestingly, I've noticed over the years that um, the differences really turn on a, a couple of different factors. Uh, the most easily measured is probably size. Uh, size matters for these projects. Um If you're working on a project that involves an entire satellite, for instance, your program is working to build, design and build the entire satellite, uh, then you'll have several systems engineers, perhaps, and your customer may have quite a few representatives that you'll be working with on any given day. And uh, sometimes they they want to be very deeply involved, uh, usually for the bigger projects they do. And on the other hand, if you're just building one small item, one small piece of equipment, uh, perhaps a piece of test equipment, then you may only be working with one or two customer representatives, and they may be a little bit more hands-off. I have uh, worked on programs, too. Uh, The the, the other factor that really matters is style, I would say, and, and that's a tough thing to measure. But customers tend to have their own style and their own approach to a project. I have worked on NASA projects before, uh, one project where they wanted to be involved in everything. They were in every single meeting. 
they were on the phone all day, just all the time. Um, honestly, you, you almost felt like you were sitting right next to them sometimes because they, they were just there so much and they, they wanted to be hands-on with everything. I also have worked on NASA projects where they were much more hands-off. Um, they wanted regular updates. They wanted access to our work, but they didn't necessarily feel a need to be involved in every single solitary minute decision. So I believe that's a style thing and um, um, just how, how the customer prefers to approach things. So flexibility is really an important thing for my job. That makes sense, definitely, with so many, uh, you know, var- uh, varying needs of different projects, definitely. So switching gears a bit, uh, let's talk about your experiences as a woman in a male-dominated field, you know, uh, engineering, aerospace engineering especially. How did the predominantly male surrounding environment affect your perceived credibility beyond your actual qualifications for your job? So this is a very subtle thing. Uh, I can tell you that no one has ever come out and said to me or to any other woman that I personally know, uh, well, you're, you're no good in this field because you're a woman. I've never heard that. Happy to say. I, it does happen, of course, but uh, uh, it's not something that I've had to deal with myself. Um, more often, I have the issue where I have to work harder to prove myself. I have to have better, more consistent data to back up a position. I have to have a far better thought process, a more a more tight burden of proof, if you will, uh, if I have something that I need to bring up or if I have an issue that I would like to fix and I need the help of, of my male teammates. Um, that's It's not something that, that is really easy to put your finger on. Um, also, I've noticed that um, sometimes when when I'm in a meeting, for instance, or working with a group of people, it's more likely that some of my male colleagues just will not listen when I have something to say, almost as if my voice has no sound. And that may sound a little bit unreal, but I I can tell you of of an instance a couple of years ago, actually, where in a meeting, we were discussing a product that was to be delivered to the customer, a a, a piece of writing actually that I've worked on. And I mentioned in one place where, I had planned to fix a particular paragraph and that that was something I was going to be taking care of after the meeting. And I asked if there were any other questions and I'm not kidding. One of my male colleagues squinted, looked at the screen and said, Hmm, well, you should probably take care of that, that thing right there. The exact thing that I had just said I was going to fix. That's, um, it's a pretty, uh, pretty egregious example. And I'd say that probably happens uh, on a somewhat regular basis. And so it's very frustrating that way. Wow. That, that's, that sounds like something from like an archaic 1960s sexist magazine, but, um, mm-hmm. but wow. And, and so interesting to hear that it, it's subtle and falls more, much more in a subtext than a direct, you don't know how to do your job because you're a woman, because that could be you know, so easily combated that could say, well, why do you think that? And, you know, maybe in a 15 minute conversation, um, you know, that person could be a little bit more educated, but for it to be so subtle and so ingrained in the brain. Wow. That's incredible. Um, so I think, I think we may have talked about this before, but, um, there was a, a fairly recent trend and several supporting studies to, to, you know, back it up. But, um, 
there was a claim that uh, several school environments or, or learning environments uh, with you know all women or, or with all uh, female students produced this incredible efficiency and, and creativity levels um, either in the classroom or in the workplace. From my research, you know, like I said, a lot of it was in a school setting where there was more learning and creativity happening um, with younger women. But how do you think this translates to an all-female work environment? Do you think that there's something to be said for the creativity and for the work that comes out of an all-female environment, uh, perhaps, you know, by the the lack of a, you know, male-dominating threat or some other reason? Okay, okay, sorry, we we lost our connection there for a minute, um, unfortunately. Yeah, so to pick up on the question that you asked about the potential of an all-woman team and whether that could be more efficient and perhaps uh, more creative than than a typical team, that's really hard to say. I have worked before in very small teams that were all women, say two or three, four people, uh, never any larger teams that were all women. Um, I can tell you that in my experience, the efficiency can be very high. And the, the creativity also, I believe it's, uh, I believe that that can be attributed to the fact that there's a certain level of freedom. Um, some of the issues that we mentioned before, when you don't feel you have to worry about that, you've got more room to spend that mental energy on other things. And so in that sense, I believe that there could be an advantage Having said that, though, it's, it's like so many things. It really does depend on the people. Um, there are times when even even working with only women can, um, just due to poor communication or other factors, when there can be problems. And so as with any team, communication is the key. And I would say in particular that in any team setting, you get the best results when everyone on the team is given a chance to speak and, just as importantly, to be heard whether it's men, women, or any mix of genders. I like that, that you added the not just be able to speak, but be able to be heard and listened to kind of like when you were um, telling your, your story or your, your personal account of, you know, acknowledging what could be fixed in, in the, the written paper and yet, you know, not even being heard or being registered, like being corrected on the same thing by someone else. Um, and, and good that you mentioned people of other identities and genders outside of the, you know, the, the dichotomy and the issue and the disparities between men and women. Um, what injustice have you experienced uh, in the workplace regarding people of color or different abilities, orientations, identities, so many other, uh, you know, cross-sections of identity other than just um, cisgendered people? So uh, a disclaimer here, obviously, I can only speak for myself and my, my own experiences. And um, that obviously does not extend to quite a few of the, of the marginalized groups. Um, I think that um, one of the biggest disparities that I have ever witnessed and experienced as a woman myself, but, but also witnessed um, and heard of with other marginalized groups, um, has to do with just a, a really basic lack of help and mentoring, um, especially for the newer people coming on board. And The problem is not as bad now as it was when I started my career in 2000, Uh, but it does still happen where a newer person will come into the company. um, If they are a white male appearing to be cisgender, straight, um, oftentimes other employees who are also 
white, male, cisgender, straight, passing for straight, um, they are more likely to just step in automatically, almost without thinking. They'll to do, will explain things to them. And it's almost like that, that mentoring is just built in. On the other hand, um, a woman or a person of color, somebody um, to pick up where I was, um, I've noticed that teams that are already diverse are a lot better at coming together to teach or mentor diverse people, people of color, um, people of different ability or presentation who come onto the team. And um, I also will say that the lack of help and mentoring in the early days of a person's career can be a massive, massive setback later on. So this is something that is extremely important to me. And I push this with every new person that I, that I meet. That's fantastic that you, that the, that you take the, uh, the responsibility yourself of being an advocate. I, I love that. Um, no, something that I remember from, like I said, when we talked a little bit ago, um, we talked about the difference between discussions in the, you know, corporate or in the, or in the workplace corporate setting um, versus action plans being made. Why are uh, only discussions with no action behind them um, about these injustices against human rights not enough? Well, so it may seem a bit trite, but words are important. Words are great. But in the end, words are very easy to say. They are very easy to deliver. Action is everything. Even small actions will add up. And that's because action really shows commitment. A company can say all day, we've been hearing about this quite a lot in the past couple of years, a company will say, we care about human rights. Okay, that's wonderful. Okay, true commitment, however, is when the company budgets money to hire a team of people to investigate problems. When they pay for every employee in the company to attend classes on diversity, and when they put out money to support local community events such as pride events. That's the difference right there. And that is how we move forward. I have noticed a very marked difference in, well, several companies and in what I've heard in various communities since more of them have been stepping forward to really take a stand to actually sponsor, monetarily sponsor local community events such as local Pride Fest or other such events for marginalized people. It really does make a difference when you have action and not just words. Wow, fantastic. As an advocate yourself, uh, as opposed to advocacy coming from um, a a corporate message or anything like that, um, what is the price that you think advocates might pay for speaking up for others? You know, as much of a a fantastic job that they're doing, yourself included, what kind of repercussions come from that um, that aren't necessarily always foreseen? So this is a really sad reality that you have brought up um that there there often is a price to be paid even if it's not something that you can just really really put a circle around and and say oh look this this thing happened uh it's it's very sad but still to this day in the year 2022 advocates often get labeled you get labeled as a troublemaker a do-gooder other things that i will not mention here 
Um, on the flip side, though, it's it's important to understand that advocates will pay a price, but companies and institutions stand to gain a great deal for every single person in their midst who stands up and advocates. And this is something that we've got to really remember and really take to heart. Because when somebody advocates for a marginalized person or a person being treated unfairly, the team, the company, gains that the person being attacked is an ally and that space has been created for that marginalized person to fully participate in the work that you're doing and to bring their unique and very valuable perspective. Moreover, they're going to go and tell all of their equally skilled friends who are also part of a marginalized community about the good experience that they have had on your team or in your company. Or they will tell them about the bad experience, but that's what you don't want. Right. Why do you think it's uh, usually socially acceptable to, you know, quote unquote, shoot the messenger of someone standing up against injustice rather than taking a deeper look at the problem at hand? I really wish I had a good answer for this. Um, I don't. I I imagine that uh, there are lots of psychologists out there who have written PhD theses on the topic. And I don't know if we really have gotten that close to a good answer. Uh, My perception of this is um, there there are a few pieces to this, I think. First, people really hate to be wrong. They, They just don't like to be wrong. And our society as a whole is to blame for that. I mean, think about it. We beat people up for being wrong. I mean, you see it all the time on TV. Any celebrity that's, you know, says says a word that they maybe didn't think about or somebody who just makes it makes a maybe not so great decision. Wow. It's out there for everybody to see in the public. And it's beaten up over and over again. You, you, you can't you can't turn on the TV for two weeks after something happens like this. Right. And you're, you're hearing about it all over again. So we really do beat people up for being, quote unquote, wrong. Um, sometimes they should be beaten up, but uh, we probably do it more than is really necessary. A lot of people are really terrified of that attention, even if they're not really a celebrity or they're not a well-known name. Nobody wants to be beaten up like that in their own community, even. Uh, The second thing I I think is more insidious, and that is that if a person attacks somebody who is perceived to have a threatening viewpoint, then anybody who is watching that exchange will learn that there are consequences. And it's important to realize that when you see these attacks taking place, um, very often the person doing the attacking, the person doing the, the, the verbally beating up, they're doing it not because they think they're going to change the person they don't like. They're not doing it for that. They're doing it for the benefit of the audience. They're doing it to tell something to the witnesses, to send a message to the greater community. Uh, You see that a great deal in politics, but you see it on the small scale too. Um, And it's also interesting to note that with both of the things I just mentioned, this is actually a lot like a bully on a playground at school. You know, oftentimes the bully maybe doesn't really care that much at all about the person that they're victimizing, but they really do want to look strong and powerful to their bully friends or to other people. And that's really sad. It's really sad that those dynamics can't just be left behind 
you know, when we, when we all grow up, but somehow it's, people just don't want to leave that behind. And that's really a shame. Wow. Definitely. Now with everything we've talked about this afternoon, I noticed a similarity between your approach to systems engineering and your approach to tackling social challenges where people aren't being treated fairly. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I'm gathering that your perspective is that we cannot solve a problem if we cannot ex- acknowledge the very existence of that problem. So in your opinion, what kind of an action plan is most effective after acknowledging a problem, whether it be with regard to systems engineering or human rights or another area of interest? So this is a really, um, I believe, a powerful opportunity for all of us to recognize the similarities here. Uh, because we can bring the same set of skills to all of these problems, whether in engineering or in society. Um, You can put the scientific answer to the society problem, and you can often bring the the skills that you have to to work on societal problems into science and engineering. Um, And so to answer your question, I do indeed believe that. And I would say that just in a general sense, if you have an engineering problem or a civil rights problem or a society problem, the answer is never to stay silent. That's the wrong thing to do. So just wipe that off the board. Okay. This is not time to keep the mouth shut. (laughs) Um, In my own opinion, the first correct step to solving these kinds of problems, whether in engineering or society at large, is first to make a commitment to exploring the problem. Get curious. In engineering, I talk to my experts in my organization. I listen to their perspective. I look at the data. I try to see the problem for myself when I'm able to. I I like to get eyes on it if I can. For human rights problems, we can listen to those who are in marginalized communities. We can ask them, where are the problems? What are their experiences with these problems? And in both cases, We can ask the people who are in the know, what does the answer look like? What would be a good way to approach this problem? How how would we know when we reach success? I have those conversations with my team all the time. And when we are approaching human rights problems, similar questions have got to be asked. And again, as I said before, listened to. Now, it's important to note that large problems, regardless of the type of problem, are never solved quickly. But that is all the more reason to take steps to do what you can when you can, because you're never going to solve a problem if you don't at least try. For sure. With that said, what kind of social progress would you hope to see among how people of different abilities, identities, et cetera, are treated within the STEAM fields within the next, let's say, 10 years? Did you just ask me to dream? Well, at least be a little idyllic for for a minute. (laughs) So I would really love to see a world where the chief question asked by any budding scientist or engineer is, what do I truly love to do? And not, will I be safe in this environment? I would like to see a world where every employer out there tells every single prospective candidate, if you have a passion for this work, then you are welcome here. Bring your talents, bring every single part of you to this job, to this project, to this company. 
because we want your talent, we want your passion, and we know that you are at your best when you are every single thing that you are. And that is the, the chief thing. And I really do believe that it's not out of reach if we all, all of us can commit to doing that. Wow, what a what a powerful sentiment and what a powerful note to end on. Thank you so much, Adris. It's been fabulous to have you here with us this afternoon. Um, and I really appreciate you carving out the time to share your experiences and, and share your knowledge and insight into systems engineering and human rights and, and so much more. It's truly been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aspen. I enjoyed it. Women in STEAM Perspectives from the Field podcast series is a student production of Shortcrest Preparatory School. Theme composed by Julia Lagakis, Class of 2021. Artwork by Shannon Ross, Class of 2021. Host, Aspen Slavic Birlak, Class of 2022. This podcast series is made possible by a grant from Intuitive, maker of the Da Vinci and Ion Surgical Robotic Systems. The Intuitive Foundation is dedicated to promoting the advancement of STEM educational programs, medical and technology research, healthcare training, and fellowship programs.